Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And the reason 
often posited for that is that's a foreign policy issue that shouldn't be decided by the, the courts. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. I mean, uh, we didn't like it when Nigeria indicted uh, Vice President Cheney. Uh, and you could see where it could be a very sensitive issue if, if prosecutors went around um, indicting foreign officials all the time for FCPA allegations. That said, DOJ has made it clear for quite a while that there are going to be cases where the money laundering activities from the bribery so affect U.S. commerce uh, that they're going to use the anti-laundering laws to bring cases against officials. I was involved in some of those cases. For example, U.S. v. Duperval, uh, which is a Haitian official who was uh, uh, charged with accepting bribe money from some Miami telecom companies uh, and laundering the proceeds through shell companies and bank accounts located in South Florida. And the decision was made in that case that this affects the U.S. enough, and also in that case, the Haitian government was behind it, that we brought that case and a couple other ones I was involved in as well. Um, but I think recently there's been a lot of push from the business community to try to attack bribery, foreign bribery, from both the supply side and the demand side. And it does seem that that message has been getting through to DOJ, and they've been be beginning to bring, I think, even more frequently – cases against uh, officials on the demand side the the uh, for using the money laundering statutes. So far, that hasn't been challenged in court. Uh, there's an argument to be made that that is a tr an end run around some of the appellate court decisions that say you can't charge a, uh, an official directly for an FCPA violation, and this is some way a way to get around it improperly. They, they haven't raised to the level of appellate courts yet, um, but one interesting thing will be to see is if DOJ does continue to use the anti-money laundering statutes to charge officials, will there be another FCPA case, uh, appellate court case, addressing this particular charging theory, which I think is going to be pretty interesting. I think in the meantime, the business community is pretty happy about this because, again, it, it, it's not just focusing on them on the supply side, but also going after and trying to deter the demand side as well. So the um, in this in the uh, Petavesa cases, though, James, we had um, U.S. Uh, uh, U.S. Uh, um, jurisdiction because we had money actually routed through U.S. banks uh, by an individual who, although I do not believe was a U.S. citizen, at some point in time was in the United States to carry out part of the bribe scheme. So we had um, you know the, the CITES jurisdiction in the United States. Does that make a difference? It does. It does. So that is one of the um, policy-based decisions that DOJ considers is uh, how much of an impact did these transactions have on the U.S. banking system and the U.S. economy? And if the answer is very little, um, then there's going to be a much higher chance that they will not use their discretion to bring anti-money laundering charges. Uh, but if there's the more nexus there is, the more activity there is in the United States, the more impact there is on the U.S. banking and financial system, the more likely it is that DOJ will bring uh, cases uh, using the AML statutes against the foreign officials. So um, I'm a here here in Houston. Uh, Petavesa is uh, much more well known. Uh, they are um, obviously a major player in the international. Uh, energy development space, um, 
business-wise, Halliburton this week announced they had to write off their entire investment uh, with PDVSA. Chevron just uh, this week also won a $2 billion claim against PDVSA, so they're in the news a lot, and their corruption is in the news a lot. And this is uh, also really tied to U.S. sanctions around uh, Venezuela because PDVSA owns a uh, actually a U.S. refinery, Citgo. So many are wondering uh, kind of what may happen along sanctions. And uh, if there was one uh, entity issue or case that I would say we are going to be watching for some time, it's certainly going to be PDVSA. Absolutely. And I think uh, this this prosecution has a lot of legs, uh, and there may be additional charges brought as well. We will just uh, uh, continue to watch this space, as my English wife would say. Um <laughs> James, we had a couple um, interesting FCPA-related RICO lawsuits, and these are um, becoming perhaps a little more increasingly common. They often take the form of shareholder uh, derivative actions or securities fraud actions. What do you see uh, are the implications for the compliance professional? Well, it's interesting. You're right. For the most part, for a long time, what we saw was if there was some kind of public disclosure of um, FC, potential FCPA violations by a publicly traded company, whether it be just a securities filing or an actual enforcement action, it would be followed by wave after wave of shareholder derivative uh, suits and, and the like. Uh, it seems some of those have, have been successful, some not so successful, um, but it seems like plaintiff's attorneys have decided that a new tack to pursue is the RICO lawsuit. And so it's not unprecedented. It's not ha it's not that it's never happened before, but it was interesting that uh, uh, there were two new ones filed in uh, earlier this year. Uh, and there may be an indication of things to come that the RICO, civil RICO statute might be used more. Uh, and obviously that causes all kinds of problems downstream. For example, uh, if a uh, publicly traded company is cooperating with the U.S. government or other governments and is making presentations about um, uh, investigative findings or the like. We've seen several cases recently that show that that might lead to a claim of, for example, privilege waiver or attorney-client product, uh, attorney uh, attorney work product waiver, um, which could make it more difficult when they play civil plaintiffs bring these kind of cases. So the uh, typically we see a shareholder suit filed uh, when an FCPA investigation is announced, but it's not resolved until long after uh, the uh, regulatory settlement, either from the Department of Justice and or the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, we're, from the DOJ or former DOJ perspective, is that almost uh, like white noise to what you guys had to do, or was it ever considered as a part of the enforcement actions you guys were bringing? It, you know, it was really pretty separate from what we were doing. There were times where um, it could be a, a distraction. For example, if the the plaintiffs tried to get um, certain discovery or things like that that we thought might interfere with the criminal case, we might go and try to file a stay of the civil action. On the other hand, there are some times where uh, it was possible that the civil suit might kick loose some information that we are or otherwise might not have gotten uh, as criminal prosecutors or not have thought of as criminal prosecutors. Uh, and so sometimes it actually worked in our benefit. So there was, I think there was at one point, there was a, a reflexive action 
um, by DOJ that whenever a civil suit was filed, you'd automatically move to stay. But over the years, I think you saw the DOJ prosecutors becoming a little more nuanced, evaluating the circumstances and evaluating how the particular civil action could be detrimental or helpful to the case, and then decide how to go uh, forward from there. It also seemed that judges were tending to be a little less inclined to grant stays. So I think that also DOJ had to be a little bit more um, uh, circumspect in which cases they moved to stay. Well, we're going to talk about one of the, the not one of, the largest FCPA shareholder-related settlements a little bit later. But um, typically what I see from the compliance practitioner perspective is really not much in from the shareholder's action. I can only think of two shareholder actions where, as part of the settlement, there was something directly related to a compliance program, uh, either an innovation or an additional component of a compliance program. Typically, it's just a payment of uh, legal fees to the plaintiff's counsel. So um, it's going to be interesting to see if this new tactic, uh, where that may take it. Uh, yes. So we had uh, one of the most significant whistleblower cases uh, recently from the U.S. Supreme Court in the form of Digital Realty Trust versus Summers. Uh, there's been lots of discussions about what this may mean for uh, regulators in the form of Securities and Exchange Commission to corporate compliance programs, to individual whistleblowers, to those who represent whistleblowers. But I've been really uh, interested in, in wanting to talk to you, James, to really uh, see if I can get a, an understanding of from the D former DOJ perspective. Um, what was the significance you saw in this case, and, and it, will it really make a change for what the Department of Justice does going forward? Sure, thanks, Tom. So, when I uh, my last couple of years as an assistant chief in the FCPA unit, I ran the whistleblower program for DOJ. So, I I was uh, we had an email address where people could submit whistleblower complaints, and what I really saw after Dodd Frank was um, the increased involvement of whistleblower attorneys, um, which did a couple of things. Number one, um, it, it meant that the whistleblower complaints were much more sophisticated, fulsome, and helpful than they were when we were just getting emails from, pardon the term, but random citizens who just said, I think my, my company's paying bribes. You know, the whistleblower attorneys knew how to package it a little more uh, and make it more interesting and useful for us. It doesn't mean, though, that it, it increased necessarily the the volume of uh, vera the veracity of the complaints because at the end of the day, if the whistleblower was making it up or if the whistleblower didn't have the full information, it still wasn't helpful. But it did give rise to this um, more whistleblower attorneys and I think more complaints filed with SEC and DOJ. I think the digital reality, if you look at it from that perspective, it's kind of a mixed blessing for companies. On the one hand, it says, you know, we may be able to defend ourselves in a particular whistleblower suit because you didn't go to SEC or DOJ. But at the same time, if I'm a plaintiff's attorney, I may, and I have a client and the client's trying to decide, should I go to SEC or should I report this internally? I may say, you better report this externally so that we can still have the ability to bring a retaliation claim later on in case things go wrong. And so I think from a DOJ perspective, I, I, I remember when the Asadi case came out and thinking like, you know, right. it was a short-term victory, but is it going to be a long-term loss or at least a long-term complication for companies? And so I think when you're, if you're a company dealing with this, I think you need to really um, 
it, it may help you in a particular case, but you really need to go back to your whistleblower program and make sure that you have all the doors open and all the avenues open to get those whistleblowers to feel comfortable reporting internally and not to go with that external reporting. So you can hopefully, you know, investigate and handle these things yourselves because once it gets into the government's hands, you really lose control over the investigation. You sometimes lose control over the narrative. Uh, and I think it's really important to try to make sure to, in a very appropriate way, consistent with the SEC admonishments and, and the law to say, look, we are a company that, that, uh, receives and takes seriously and investigates whistleblower allegations. So hopefully you can avoid this incentive from digital reality for plaintiff's lawyers to tell you, hey, go report this to the government right away so that we can preserve these rights later on. Yeah, I've, I've gone so far as to say uh, don't ask for something because you might get it. And uh, that seems to me to be uh, exactly uh, uh, could turn into a long-term loss or at least a complication, as you said, James. Definitely. Uh we saw um, uh, Canada is moving towards um, supporting or implementing DPAs, and really, I wanted to use this, James, as a, as maybe a starting point. We've, I don't think, uh, discussed any Canadian cases in this case. Um, they're obviously a very close neighbor of us, uh, but I was wondering, kind of, what's the um, uh, rapport between Canadian prosecutors and, and American prosecutors, the cooperation, or did you have the opportunity to meet with them and, and talk through and, and kind of get their views? Or how, I guess, can I get a sense of really how that works at the prosecutorial level? Yeah, we actually had um, very good cooperation with Canada uh, from the law enforcement side, just like we do, I think, in most areas of um, being neighbors. I'm from Michigan, of course, so we always kind of considered Canada just to be another state, not an, <laughs> not, not an offensive way, but but you'd always say, have you ever been out of the country? <laughs> no. Well, I've been to Canada. Right. Uh, that's just, I mean, that's reflective of the closeness that we had um, between our two countries and the ability to cross borders. Um, but we, we did have a good enforcement uh, relationship with them. For example, I don't know if you remember the, um, the Karagar case, which yes. was... The, the first case that uh, the Canadians actually convicted an individual of foreign bribery. If you read the decision, uh, it, it references the cooperation that uh, DOJ provided uh, in that case, including back to the whistleblower uh, note, um, Carragher actually self-reported himself via the DOJ whistleblower email address, uh, <laughs> uh, said that he was paying bribes on behalf of a company and somehow seemed to think that was going to give him negotiating leverage with the company he was paying bribes for. It didn't work out very well, and we provided that information to the Canadians, and that was some of the evidence they used to convict him uh, of that. So, so there was a very good um, relationship there. Um, they're also obviously a member of the OECD, and so they're at the working group meetings, and and uh, you know they're subject to peer review and things like that. And really, I think the DPA is emphasized as a, as a useful enforcement tool for OECD members. The OECD really looks a lot to the success that the U.S. FCPA enforcement has had and looks to reasons for that success and seems to think that one of the reasons for that is that the DPA offers a flexible enforcement tool. And so I think it's not a surprise that several OECD members, not just Canada, but Australia, France, the U.K., are also considering or have adopted DPA regimes as well as a useful enforcement tool for foreign bribery prosecutions. Uh, they, you know, they can be used to incentivize 
self-reporting and cooperation, um, and and they they can be a little more flexible than some of the more rigid legal systems out there, where it can be very difficult to um, plead guilty or convict a company of of foreign bribery. So I think um, you know this is a trend that we're seeing a, across a lot of the OECD member nations of starting to adopt that sort of American style uh, DPA, although with a twist. Um, Canada's not adopted it yet, but it seems like it may be leaning towards it, but leaning towards more of a UK regime that requires court approval and mandatory publication of DPAs, whereas in the, in the United States, uh, DOJ has fought against needing court approval and does typically publish the um, DPAs publicly, but is not required to do so. So uh, we um, uh, um, foreshadowed this next topic a little bit, but we had a uh, huge uh, shareholder settlement on an FCPA-related matter, which was the Petrobras shareholder settlement. This was a $2.95 billion settlement. It was not an FCPA settlement. It was a settlement for the devaluation of the stock price uh, based upon allegations of bribery and corruption that the plaintiff's counsel alleged the board of directors uh, were aware of or uh, did not uh, take appropriate steps. So uh, it was um, very interesting. It was in front of Judge Rakoff. It was, uh, as I said, the largest case. The next largest case on an FCPA-related shareholder case was $77 So it shows you really the, uh, the size of this case. And I'd been wanting to visit with you, James, to to get your thoughts. Is this case really a complete outlier, or could it be a harbinger? Is it was it an, uh, when I say outlier, I mean really uh, based on a very unique set of facts. I do think there's a lot of uniqueness to this. I mean, it's a it's a involves a lot of money, obviously, because it's a, a major oil company um, over a long period of time where there's been a tremendous amount of investigative work put in by several different countries, uh, law enforcement agencies to look into this. So it is a bit of a unique situation. I think one really unique situation is that the Brazilian government and prosecutors tended to see um, Petrobras as a victim of the bribery, that the corrupt, uh, allegedly corrupt officials and executives of Petrobras actually victimized the company. So it's very interesting that eventually Petrobras did agree to this uh, to this settlement. Probably, I mean, I'm speculating now, but you know, uh, there was a lot of money at issue here, and it may have just made sense to try to uh, stem the losses by doing this, even though it's still a record-setting um, resolution. But I think I do think you know, there's going to continue to be shareholder suits. We talked about the RICO suits. Uh, but I do think that the Petrobras um, situation is, is fairly unique, given everything else that's been going on in Brazil and out elsewhere regarding Petrobras. And I, I probably should have said this at, at the introduction of this uh, topic, James, but this was not Petrobras, the Brazilian company. This was Petrobras USA, a U.S. stock exchange listed company where there was a demonstrable drop in stock prices. So often in FCPA-related shareholder actions, uh, there may be some drop, but you don't have a, a truly dramatic drop. And and even if you do have <clears throat> some drop, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the price picks up later, which did not happen for Petrobras USA. So, um, <clears throat> as Fair I said, point. Uh, a really uh, unique set of circumstances. So, it, it may be uh, 
just limited to the facts, but now we have a precedent. And as we all know, once you have one precedent, others find their way along. So uh, this is going to be an interesting one to watch. Fair point. Very complicated and interesting resolution. So uh, we have seen over the past 18 months, in addition to Petrobras, the Brazilian prosecutions, uh, new laws from other South American countries and really a new awareness about uh, the global fight of uh, uh, corruption. And uh, Peru introduced a new anti-bribery, anti-corruption law. And I was just wondering from your perspective, James, have you seen this this change and at the prosecutorial level in South America? And is that something that, that you really think is is changed things? Yeah, so this is, again, OECD-related, where Peru wants to become a member of the OECD. And one of the requirements of the anti-corruption, um, uh, anti-bribery convention is that you have if not criminal liability for corporations, at least a, um, a, a liability uh, regime for corporations that will make foreign bribery um, be deterred by that by the liability. So I do think we saw with Brazil, which is obviously an OECD um, anti-bribery convention member, um, which introduced their corporate liability law. And I think the more that South American company countries and others want to integrate themselves into that um, the OECD member nations. They're going to start moving towards corporate liability for certain offenses. Well, it's going to be. Uh, I, f- I find it fascinating, and uh, actually, I'm presenting with a couple of guys at uh, SCCE in October on this subject. So um, with Peru and I said Argentina, I think there's some renewed emphasis now in Mexico. It's going to be very interesting to see more uh, more prosecutions, perhaps in uh, countries uh, in South America other than Brazil. James, we've had a series of declinations really beginning back in um, January. Uh, we had a big one for Houston and the Houston uh, energy community with Cobalt International, but we've had uh, a few other declinations. Uh, I will leave Dun and Bradstreet for a later day since uh, that did not happen in January or February. But we had um, Jupiter Networks, we had Teradata, and Xterra, and another Houston-based company. And I was just wondering if uh, you guys saw anything in any of these declinations uh, that would communicate information to the compliance professional. Sure. Well, I think part it's very interesting to read about these declinations in the context of the FCPA and uh, pilot program and the enforcement policy. Um, given now that DOJ tends to not decline a lot of these cases uh, without at least trying to get disgorgement, so we see that some of these cases where they where DOJ de, uh, declined, the companies noted in their um, in their securities filings that the SEC is still continuing to investigate. And so what that might mean, and we don't know for sure, but what it might mean is that DOJ has decided, you know, this is not a case for us. Uh, There is an administrative penalty available that might be more appropriate. So we're going to take a pass on this one and let the SEC enforce it. Whereas if they were not publicly traded companies and there wasn't the SEC action, we might see a declination with disgorgement or some kind of action going forward. So I think one of the most interesting things is before the pilot program and before the corporate enforcement policy, people would always say, well, we don't know why you're declining. And and given this, the current state, a declination seems to indicate uh, either 
um, for these ones at the SEC that there may be a policy reason to decline because there's another administrative action uh, agency that can go forward with it with that. Whereas if it's a straight declination, it may suggest instead that there was no evidence, no jurisdiction, um, statute limitations had expired, things like that, where DOJ actually felt they couldn't bring the case and was not making a policy-based decision, but instead a uh, strength of the evidence type uh, determination. Uh, so lots, uh, I think lots of people here, uh, certainly in the in the Houston compliance community, looked at both the work done by Cobalt and Xterra on their compliance programs and really took away that from the remediation perspective, uh, the more remediation you can do before, uh, obviously you self-disclose, but even after self-disclosure during the pendency of an investigation, it's, it's going to help you uh, to get a, a better result, whatever that better result might be at the end of the day. So uh, that was one of the takeaways we had down here. I think that's fair. And I think DOJ's done a lot of, um, for the last couple of years, uh, really emphasized um, co- self-disclosure, cooperation, and remediation as ways that um, that can mitigate prob- FCPA, otherwise potentially very serious FCPA problems. So I think that's a fair, that's a fair takeaway. Well, James, as always, this has been a, a fascinating exploration of the Morrison and Forrester uh, top 10 international and corporate developments. We took a look at two months this year, or excuse me, on this podcast, January and February. And I greatly look forward to uh, finding out what you guys uh, want to talk about in March and April. Thanks, Tom. Go Blue. Go Blue. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the longest-running podcast in compliance. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week when we present another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.